My name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 29, with our returning guest for the final episode of our series focused on the nation-state papers of the United States of America today, Dorolo Nixon Jr., who is in his spiffy blue my blue blazer. Jacket. His blazer. Oh, look at that. There's a little thread. Hmm. They got to keep you humble, right? You know what? It's not going to show up on the video version of the podcast. It's okay. And in audio, oh, I can see the threads. It's a good memento mori, right? It, it is. Memento mori. It could be Gucci. It's not. It could be Gucci. <laughs> still going to have a thread go haywire now and then. Um, you know well, what we saw yesterday? Oh, go ahead. No, what did you see? What did you see yesterday before we jump into Ferrari in the woods? It was really funny. Wait, what? And I was telling the person who was in my truck with me, I was telling her, you know, welcome to Arizona. Um, but we were coming out of a national forest and then going into the national forest was a Ferrari. And it's just like, this is rough woods and this road is going to end in about a mile and then become dirt and gravel. Mm-hmm. And you're driving. It looked like it was, it almost looked like a Testarossa. Uh, I think it was certainly from the late 80s or early 90s. It didn't look like it was more modern than that. And so it's a classic Ferrari. Um, and I had no idea what that person was doing driving in, on that road. None. Um, but that's what it makes me think of, you know. Well, this is uh, this is America, and we are Americans. And so we will drive our Ferraris in the middle of the forest. Yeah. <laughs> and take so- it to a... Um, what the heck is it called? And take it to a... Um, a mechanic to repair who's going to smile and happily take their money. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. All thousands of them. All thousands of those dollars. Yes. (laughs) All thousands of those dollars. All right. Well, let's get, uh, let's get into it here from the anti-federalist papers edited with an introduction by Ralph Ketchum. That's the version of the book that we have today. So I'm showing it here on the podcast go and get that is the signet classics version of the anti-federalist papers which does include the constitutional convention debates which we're going to talk about today and uh as well as the articles of confederacy uh the constitution and the declaration of independence is included in the signet classics edition of the anti-federalist papers quoting directly from benjamin franklin's speech in convention on the 17th of september 1780 Seven, And I quote, I agree to this Constitution with all its faults if they are such, because I think a general government necessary for us and there is no form of government but what may be a blessing to the people if well administered. And I believe farther that this is likely to be well administered for a course of years and can only end in despotism as other forms have done before it. When the people shall become so corrupted as to need despotic government being incapable of any other. I doubt, too, whether any other convention can obtain may be able to make a better constitution. For when you assemble a number of men to have the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably assemble with those men all their prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. From such an assembly can a perfect production be expected. 
It therefore astonishes me, sir, to find this system approaching so near to perfection as it does, and I think it will astonish our enemies who are waiting with confidence to hear that our councils are confounded like those of the builders of Babel, and that our states are on the point of separation, only to meet hereafter for the purpose of cutting one another's throats. Thus I consent, sir, to this constitution because I expect no better, and because I am not sure that it is not the best. Unquote. In order to form a more perfect union. These are the words of men, leaders, all with their own foibles, passions, blind spots, and talents, as Benjamin Franklin just mentioned there in his speech, who sought to bring to bear their knowledge and wisdom to the toughest organizational challenge any leader anywhere in any time can ever face, that of creating a new country. In our time, however, where more new countries have appeared on the global horizon than ever before, since the collapse of Western colonialism and the end of the scourge of nation-state Marxism, at a multi-country geopolitical scale, we are used to reading or hearing the news about one new country or another. It seems as though literally every five years, ten years, and I'm sure we will hear about more countries coming forth in the future. And yes, those countries fall into disrepair, disunion, and despotism, mostly because of the venal, corrupt character of their leaders, more so even than the corrupt characters of their people. Fundamental to the creation of any organization is the ability to disagree with the majority opinion and be allowed the freedom to retain life, limb, and property. This is not an obvious conclusion for human beings to run to, as in the history of the world, when we, what we mostly see is that disagreement with the majority tends to lead to the minority suffering evils. And yet, that is not what happens here in the United States of America, at least not up to this point. And even with all the cultural machinations and technological innovations of the last 20 years, we haven't been able to shake the idea that disagreeing with someone doesn't mean you physically destroy them. And that is an idea. And yes, I know I'm speaking of this in the backwash of cancel culture. That is something worth <laughs> fighting to preserve. And so, back from a short siesta with a fancy blue blazer, as we mentioned previously, in the high desert of Arizona, somewhere in deep in an undisclosed location, <laughs> we would like to welcome back, for the final time this month, the good friend of the podcast, Dorolo Nixon. Hello, Dorolo. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. So let's start off because we're looking at the Anti-Federalist Papers, we're looking at the arguments against the Constitution. And, 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 and as you mentioned earlier, and we'll have sort of an additional uh, outtake um, at the end of this episode, which I encourage you to stick around and watch, uh, talking about something that we're going to talk about in this episode. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, or no, we were talking about sort of what, how, how this, this, this document was opposed and the arguments against it. Um, and there were several points that were made that were not pro-Constitution back in the day. And it's really hard with 230 years of distance to kind of really understand these men and their temperaments and their characters. Um, 
But what can I, I, you know, I fundamentally believe on this podcast that we have to understand leadership and human nature, right? And human nature doesn't change, not in 230 years, not in a thousand years, not in 5,000 years. Uh, human hearts are the staying are staying the same. So let's start off with this idea of human hearts staying the same. What can these anti-federalist arguments, uh, most notoriously from Patrick Henry, but there were others as well, um, what can these anti-federalist arguments opposing the ratification of the Constitution tell us post-postmoderns um, about leading people who disagree with you, who are just going to fundamentally tell you no, and they're not going to leave your team and you can't fire them. So now you're stuck. You're right. And you still have to find a way to motivate them. You have to find a, a way to motivate them um, to change. Right. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the magic, uh, that's the magic button, right? That's the that's the the thing, the holy grail. That's the thing we're after. Right. Okay? How do we get these people who do not agree with us to change in the direction we're wishing them to go? Um, I think you have to recognize the legitimacy of their positions, that they're entitled to their interests and they're entitled to their views. Um, and then I think you have to try to seek common ground. And of course. Um, I believe it's Occam's razor, but the notion here should be, say, in a formal negotiation, mm -hmm. uh, what is the least common denominator? Or to put it from the obverse, what is the least amount of things we have to change for us to be on the same page and then move forward? Mm -hmm. And so this, you know, this great document that ended up being ratified was a classic example of a document that was brilliantly conceived and yet uh, contains several, you know, passages where arguably there's a compromise. And I mean, the thing, the only thing that's arguable is if it's a moral compromise. That, in my opinion, is the only thing you can argue. Uh, the fact that it contained a compromise is just straightforward. It's just, was the compromise legitimate? Um, but the, the intent was, how do we get 13 of us all on the same page, you know, what, what is the minimum amount that we have to afford for P or give up for people to say, yes, okay, we agree to sign on to your project. Um, so I also think it's important, you know, to keep them in the loop, to keep them in the loop with information, you know, um, hiding the ball from them won't accomplish anything. You're not going to be able to pull a bait and switch. Um, your own integrity problems will catch up with you. God ensures that. So, um, your sin will find you out. <laughs> yeah, it will. So, in this case, you know, trying to intentionally keep them in the dark, promising them something and then delivering the opposite will never get you what you want. Um, but, uh, but, it, and then if it does, it's not likely to, to, to stand, you know, because right, right. when they find out they're going to be furious and now they're going to be 10 times as attractable as they were the first time, or they may get you fired. You know, this is the documents that were presented after the following statement. And look, they contradicted. And then it's your butt out the door with right, no right. integrity, no job uh, recommendations, no severance. No, be happy you're not going to jail. Um, and uh, they're still going to be entrenched in their positions, not moving. Um, well, and there's an aspect know. here. Um, as you take as, as you as you think about it on this, um, I'm going to jump in here. There's an aspect in here which I think we miss in our social media driven age, where we associate interests with character judgments. Okay. 
talk a little bit about that because you know you opened up by saying people should be allowed their interests and understand and you should understand fundamentally their arguments and i agree with that mm-hmm. but very often we have we have fallen into the temptation which these men did not by the way at least not initially in what they what was written down um or i, well, I shouldn't say that all of them there were very few exceptions where these men slid into that trap of confusing interests with venality of character or associating interests uh, strongly held with a negative character trait. Uh, they, it seems as though they work very hard to not do that, and we fall into that all of the time. Just look at Twitter, and I pick on Twitter all the time, but I should. Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, these platforms are driven by the idea that if you disagree with me, it's not that your ar- it's not only that your argument is flawed, but it's also that you are flawed, and thus I could burn your house down. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the two additional points, right? that you are as flawed as your argument and therefore actually it's three you are as flawed as your argument two therefore um i can burn your house down and that is the last two points right Mm -hmm. that your house should be burned down and that i am fit to do it right (laughs) (laughs) three points you know uh that yes have to be confronted in today's strange age but um it's tough because on some level, they're right, right? Um, there are certain views where I think we would readily accept that the view is heinous and the person who holds it is also repugnant. Um, you know, somebody who thought that, um, you know, uh, not just that cats are a delicacy, but that the best type of cats to consume are their friends' cats and that they need not seek the friend's permission, both the notions and the person who holds them. It's heinous, <laughs> period. Um, By the way, I've never so, consumed one of Dorolo's cats ever. Yeah, I haven't either. Uh, <laughs> cat I ever owned is still alive, thank God. So he probably would try to eat me. Um, yeah, that little mouser. Anyway, um, but, you know, so yeah. I think, you know, it's important to recognize that eventually the concept, the fabric of the concept be, runs thin towards its edges and then runs out. That doesn't yeah. mean that the fabric itself doesn't hold and that it won't hold water. You know, it's just, you know, some of it. Uh, well, hmm. I think the very first point is, is just with respect for the other person. You can respect them even when you don't agree with their views, even when you don't respect their views. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this should not be unfamiliar to any listener, because Mm -hmm. uh, if you're an adult listening, it means you grew up in some household. And I would bet you that between the ages of about 12 and 20, that there were several views your parents hold that you violently, violently disagreed with. And that didn't mean, for example, that you then ran away, had yourself emancipated, went to a friend's house and refused to return, turned yourself into CPS or whatever. Um, Most people don't do that. Most people find a way to get along, even though there's a violent disagreement on views. Okay. And the same process, uh, well, you can use the same process as an adult, or you can come up a step and say, oh, I'm just going to respect my interlocutor. I'm going to respect my neighbors. They're not going to do everything that I do. That's fine. Um, 
that's necessary in any healthy civil society. Unhealthy civil societies don't have that. They have things like reprisal and vendetta, where not only are we not respecting the other person's views, we're not respecting their right to life and limb, right? And it doesn't even necessarily have to be about that individual because that's the nature of vendetta, right? Right. Oh, this happened 200 years ago. That's why somebody just shot you. What? Right. What kind of sense does that make? Or like hacking to death with a machete. uh, Right. It flies in the face of um, us capitalist loving freedom fighters, as it were, who are against the principle of group justice. Right. That we want every individual to stand or fall based on his or her own actions, plus some grace. That's what I think most of us want um, and not well, this happened 200 years ago and, you know, your ancestor did it and therefore this is what you deserve. Um, It's interesting because um, it, maybe it comes up in in arguments about reparations, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I've heard good ones. I've heard good arguments that were made. The the last um, illustration that, in my view, proved to be a good argument in favor of paying reparations to the descendants of enslaved Africans who were brought to America against their will, like the person who's talking to you, Mm -hmm. um, was the fact that the British government compensated um, some, uh, compensated the descendants of either former slave traders or slave owners right up till about 2016 for their loss of property. And when I heard that, I said, oh, so when people were property and they were taken away by the government, this is eminent domain, right? There was just compensation. Oh, okay, such that it was paid out for how long? How many years? Hmm. And so obviously the people who suffered that alleged wrong weren't still around. Their children weren't still around. Their grandchildren weren't still around. But the British government made the payments. So it's interesting. Um, because to whom did the government, this is interesting, to whom did, because we're going to go into slavery <laughs> in a little bit here. But <clears throat> to whom, this is interesting, I had not heard this. To whom did the British government make these payments? It's a good question. Let's find out. You know, were they making the payments to Americans? Were they making payments to the descendants of individuals who were? No, I think Dutch's they were. I think they were. Company? Um, Subjects of the crown who lived in, I thought it was a West Indian island. Okay. But, sorry, it's it's too, no, it would have been British subjects. Well, I'll find like out, the, though. Well, like the out. island of Sacred. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's interesting. So that's, uh, let's put a pin in that and revisit that. Um you, you, the things that you talk about, I want to kind of jog a little bit on this a little bit. Well, not jog, but I want to kind of run on this a little bit. Grace, respect, civility, having a civil culture. Um, the backstop against which all of that lies is Christianity. It's the idea that this world, and, and it is the Christian idea that this world is not all that there is. There is something else. This is a temporary stopping point. And that 
to paraphrase from Johnny Cash and the Bible, the man eventually comes around and you, and you're going to owe the man and and you're going to pay. And you could pay with your soul, which is the only eternal thing about you. I think we are having a decline in civil society because that idea has been thrown out. And now we we exist in a in a pagan culture that was always only nominally Christian, but now we really are like just not Christian at all. We're a pagan culture now. We're fully pagan. We have the cult of not the cult. We have the idol worship of self, not individualism, but individuality, where I worship myself. And though, of course, if you're not going to bend the knee to my individuality, my quote unquote postmodern truth, if you're not going to do that, then you are a direct threat. And every god who is not worshipped seeks to destroy those who do not worship it. Uh, thus, you get into the pronoun games, which I don't play. Um, and we can, you know, we don't have to talk about why, but I don't play pronoun games. Um, because again, I think that that is an elevation of the cult of individuality rather than the ideal of individualism, which is that concept that you mentioned earlier of standing or falling on your own, uh, on your own two feet rather than relying on the group for justice or 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 um, or uh, success, right? Mm -hmm. um, these are things that are embedded into our system, and we don't notice that they're gone until they're taken away. Mm. Um, and it's really hard to explain those to folks, which is why we're doing this podcast, but it's really hard to explain those to folks because they embed so deeply into not only what we do in our daily lives, but just how we conceptualize our uh, conceptualize ourselves and our position in the world. Um, what was that? Uh, what was that? Uh, that that who, who did the British government pay? So it was. Uh, so this this was the financial mechanism. Okay. Okay. And and the mechanics matter. So I believe it's in 1834, the Slavery Abolition Act. They abolished slavery throughout much of the British Empire, okay? Mm -hmm. At the time, mm -hmm. they then turned around and committed to paying $20 million, which at, oh, come on, computer, which in current, um, in current monetary amounts. That'd be a few billion. Yep, but the article I found on it has the exact amount in it. Okay. And that's where I'm trying to scroll down to. There, 17 billion pounds as of 2020. So that's pre the most current inflation, right? Sure. Yep. So let's ratchet that up to, I don't know, 27 billion. Okay. Sure. So here's the thing. So here was the mechanism. At the time, it was more than 40% of the whole annual budget for the British government. So what they had to do was they had to give bonds to the slave-owning families and some of these slave-owning institutions. And I don't know what slave-owning institution is. I don't know what they mean by that. I don't know what they mean a corporation that was actually you know, purchasing people or whatever, but that's still how it's phrased in this um, article. But anyway, um, because of those bonds, because of the mechanism of a bond, that is what the British government was literally still compensating people on 
at least as of 2015. The British Treasury tweeted about it in 2018, and there was this outrage, and they pulled the tweet, but of course, the damage had been done. Right. Anyway, so what it meant was, um, so let's show it at its nastiest. It meant that a descendant of people unjustly enslaved in the UK was paying tax dollars to compensate the family that had unjustly stolen, trafficked, and then profited from their ancestors' labor without any compensation. That's what it means. Um, And so one of the obvious uh, statements that people make now is, oh, okay, well, wouldn't it have been a better use of the money to compensate the people who suffered all this, you know, abuse and injustice? And morally, the answer is obviously yes. Um, within, you know, the British capitalist system in the 19th century? Absolutely not. Um, But there would have been, you know, people who would have stood up for that principle at the time, and there probably were. I'm I'm sure if somebody went digging in, you know, um, I think it's Hansard is the name of the company that does the the recording of uh, parliamentary debates mm-hmm. uh, and do, they do the reports about that. Um, I think if, you know, you dig in there, maybe you'll find some, you know, tidbits or what have you. But uh, the point being though, is that to me, that, that was a piece of information I learned that, that to me was a good example of payments for wrongs committed several generations back were still being made now. And there was no, the, the notion of time being an impediment just wasn't there. Um, and the piece of new information I learned in doing this research, you know, within the last seven minutes is that the payment, as it were, the mechanism was the bonds, but the bonds in 1833, 1834. And so to me, that, that does make it different. Um, not necessarily fundamentally so, uh, certainly not fundamentally so, but different, yes um i oh so okay much so closer I, to the ground of right. the damage at the okay. time than say now but okay so that's, that's with probably, tools we have though you know it could be overcome uh, that's okay so the fundamentally that's an interesting that's an interesting argument i guess for reparations um but it seems at least the way you're explaining it it seems to only narrowly work in a british context because in an American context, which if I were a British subject, okay, now we're we're talking about reparations. I'm not a British subject. Uh, um, uh, yes, you can make the argument as Ibrahim X. Kendi has made or Taha Nasi Coates has made that and many other folks on the social justice left, social mm-hmm. justice activist left, you can make the argument, and they do make it, mm-hmm. that... Uh, the reason why we need reparations is because GM, someone who ran GM, profited from free labor. Someone in their, their line profited from free labor. And because someone in their line profited from free labor, their family line profited from free labor, they have unearned money, or they had unearned money that allowed, unearned capital that allowed them to create GM, and I'm just using GM as an example, but mm-hmm. it create, allowed them to uh, create GM multiple generations later, mm-hmm. and that unearned capital leapfrogged the, 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 the racially homogenous owners of GM ahead of 
black people in America, the descendants of African slaves in America, and that that leapfrogging was unjust. And so GM has a responsibility, you talked about moral, has a moral responsibility to cover the cost of the gap between what their founders' money was going all the way back to the free labor that they got and compensate the individuals who gave that free labor. That's the twists that I can see being made in the reparations argument that dovetails with what you're saying. I still think there's a fundamental flaw in that. Um, and the fundamental flaw in that is no progenitor of the past knew that GM was going to come around or any other company. Mm-hmm. Sorry. We don't know what our future descendants are going to do or what they won't do. And so how dare we tax the past to Mm -hmm. subsidize the future? We already tax the future, by the way, to subsidize the present. And that's just as immoral. (laughs) You know, it's just as we're talking about that. And that's immoral to me. Um, But we do it constantly. Uh, We do. Why is it immoral? Well, we do it with the inflating of the money. We do it with 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 inappropriate taxation. We do it in all kinds of. Why is it immoral? What's the moral ground that you're saying is being traduced by? By, for example, spending money that we don't have. Sure, sure. Uh, The moral ground that is being traduced is the ground of, and I'm going to go directly to a Dennis Prager idea here, but it's an it's a Ten Commandments idea here. We are we are we are. We are engaging in very highfalutin theft, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it is the theft of the future to fund the present. Mm-hmm. And now we are talking about in an American context, a reparations mm-hmm. argument based off of uh, uh, thieving from the, from, the, from the present, basically, to create justice, which you cannot create, by the way, uh, cosmic justice, which we cannot get here, as Thomas Sowell would say. Um, mm-hmm to to uh, to ameliorate comes cosmic justice in the past mm-hmm. both of those are immoral it's theft mm-hmm. it, it, there's no more there's no more, there's no more a, a bigger you don't need a bigger word than that it's stealing basically okay and it specifically it's stealing from the future fruits of future labor by future people Correct. Even though right. we have no clue what kind of labor those people will do. Or if they no, will exist at all. Or if they will exist at all. And it is, and I'll go a step further, it is also another form of idolatry. But it is idolatry of the present. Mm-hmm. Because what we are doing is we are saying that in the hierarchical order of the world, the present matters more than the future and it matters more than the past. And mm-hmm. of course, we live in a cult of now. Uh, we live in the cult of presentism where mm-hmm. nothing exists outside of now. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Um, that, is a, that is a miss. That is a miss. That is a, that is, that is an inversion of the hierarchy. Right. But it's interesting because what you've done. Okay. So let me, let me, let me finish. So sure. if this is the theft of the future fruits of the future labor of future individuals, um, and it's a theft and thus wrong. Um, I take it you'd be in favor of stopping the theft and then restoring to the people who were wronged the fruits of their labor. Does that sound right? If those people are indeed alive now, but they're not. Right. But 
the moral architecture that you built posited that it was a moral wrong and you did not state that there's an equivocation if those people don't exist. No, you're right. I didn't state if there was equivocation. So sure. Yes. Let, let's, I will give you that. Sure. I'll grant you that. Yes. Sure. We should, okay. we should somehow figure out a way to do that. And if we could raise them from the dead and do such, then let's do, let's work on that technology. Right. But they don't <laughs> exist yet. So, and, and the, the only example I've used so far, it's, future fruits of future labor by future individuals. But of course, the reason I set up the architecture like this mm -hmm. is that when we examine um, the nature of American chattel slavery, we were dealing with something that did not only work a wrong in one generation, but was meant to continue in perpetuity. And thus the wrong that was done in stealing um, Ali from sure. a beach yeah. in the Gambia mm -hmm. and then shipping him to South Carolina was Ali was forced to work. If Ali had kids, they would be forced to work, etc., etc., et down the line. And so um, the same moral architecture arguably applies literally mutatis mutandis um, in that Ali's descendants were robbed of the fruits of their labor, just like he was. Um, and so if someone could put a stop to it and then restore to him the labor that was lost, to me, that would be, that would be a good work. Um, the challenges I think relate to properly tailoring, well, let me back up. The British example provides who would be the payer, right? The British example, the payer was the British government. So the, the notion of somebody saying, wait, but I didn't do that doesn't really apply. The, the British government took it upon themselves to compensate one party only involved in that situation. Um, and so if the American government made the commitment to make that payment, to me, that functions quite similarly. Um, but yeah. in terms of who would receive it, I don't have a problem with somebody trying to tailor that narrowly. I wouldn't have an issue if they wanted to say, okay, so here's how we're going to measure it using dna and other, I, I i could i could i could live with that um okay. i don't to me it doesn't it doesn't smack of uh an attempt to do cosmic uh justice it, it's just basically the uss amistad writ large that's what it is yes well but the, but the uss amistad in its moment was justice that was the best justice you were going to get in the moment and and then and then the question that of course i would ask is okay so where do where do we stop in the future then because there's all kinds of future wrongs or not sorry future wrongs there's all kinds of past wrongs that have created benefits in the present and will continue to create benefits in the future that need to be ameliorated so as i would ask our very our very lovely progressive friends on the other side of the reparations argument, and I've always asked this question, where does it end? So an example is the Japanese Americans who were interred during World War II. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about them for just a second. Did they get compensated? Uh, I don't believe so, although we can research that and we can find that out. But um, let's say they did not. Okay. Hold on a sec. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, hold on. Do we in the present, in 2022, owe the descendants of those 
Okay, um, it was they were compensated in they 1988. Were compensated. Okay. President Reagan signed the act. President Reagan. Okay, so President Reagan signed an act that compensated them for the pain and suffering that they endured uh, 40 years earlier in World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's always more pain and suffering to be had. Why is this dollar amount? I'm going to make a Thomas Sowell economic argument here. The dollar amount is arbitrary. It could be one dollar, or it could be a billion dollars. True, but it's so not what as arbitrary as no dollars. Uh, <laughs> okay, so the gap between zero and one dollar. Okay, is and the I'll, greatest. Then gap. The, okay, is the greatest gap. Okay, then I want everyone. Who, here's what I would propose in my counter proposal. Uh, sure, we can have reparations. That's fine. Every DNA uh, genetically descended individual of either of, of of a of a slave that was brought from the west coast of Africa to the United States illegally uh, back in the day, which by the way was legal back in the day, but let's gloss over that for just a minute. Uh, <laughs> uh, that engaged in that immoral act because what we're doing is compensating for morality here. We're not actually compensating for legality, but okay, correct. Um, Correct. Uh, okay, cool. I'll grant you that. Let's give everybody a dollar. Because yep. that's the only gap we've got across. Just give everybody a dollar. Yep. That's the that's that is certainly the major gap. That is the the gap is between zero and one. Okay. So um, let's give everybody one dollar. One dollar American, and we're done with the argument. We're done. We we no longer talk about it anymore. Now everyone has been compensated be. fairly. We could be. I, I do not um, believe. Well, that, I don't that know if that would be a fair compensation. But <laughs> well, it but it would be compensation. It would be compensation. It would be compensation, right? Now, so, fair, right. fair some is a whole other thing over there. Go, some, some, some compensation would go, I think, somewhere in the direction of actually accomplishing justice. Um, but. <laughs> uh, okay. It's not going to change contemporary society, in no. my view. It's not going to get somebody who is stuck up Jump Street out and into, you know, a safe neighborhood and and living in a productive capacity in a self-sustaining way. Um, And and that would be if it's a dollar or a million dollars. A million dollars would not work that. A billion dollars per person would not work that type of change. Um, It's not possible to work that type of change through monetary compensation payment. Um, but that's not arguably the point of the compensation. Um, the, in, 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 um, I know in Islam, but also um, there's gotta be other traditional societies that, that have this notion also. But in Islam, there's a concept of blood money when somebody's mm-hmm. killed. Yep. And I've lived in the Middle East and that's how I learned this. Um, it doesn't matter why the person was killed. You have to contact the representative of that person's family, okay? And whatever the amount is has to be paid. And it is meant to compensate for the loss of life. And that's it. It's not meant to obviously bring the person back from the dead. Um, It doesn't replace the person, but it is a mechanism that allows for the recognition of a guilt and then that something was done in an effort to assuage that guilt. And so um, the advantage of something like that is that it's quick, it's measurable, and you can literally bury the issue. Okay. Here's the money, and we know that this problem is going to go away along with that money. 
but we also know nope. that it won't go away. We know this in American context. Now, what the Mohammedan are doing, that's interesting. Uh, and traditional societies where, uh, and not traditional, Islamic societies where uh, the eye for an eye, limb for a limb, uh, even well, honor, what's our killing, equivalent? honor killing kind of, kind of, kind of, uh, kind of template What's our exists. equivalent? No, honor killing is no, different. No no, but... no, 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 no. We're talking about a template there. We're talking about something that fits inside of a particular cultural template. Um, I don't disagree with you. I think that that fits inside of that particular cultural cultural template. Our particular cultural template is based off of a Judeo-Christian idea that every man will pay for his sins, period, full stop. And that the, the, the sons of someone, this is even in the Old Testament, the sons of someone don't pay for the sins of the father. That's the template that we have. That's that's the or at least we had anyway. Remember, I said earlier. I think we are now in a pagan culture, and in pagan cultures, you're looking at the decline of grace, respect, civility. Uh, you're looking at uh, the approach of and this is where you get to cancel culture. Um, uh, psychological vendettas that are <laughs> that are being engaged in, uh, include and, and cultural and emotional vendettas. I mean. Um, a lot of things there, right, that we can point to, you know, the rise of cyberbullying, um, suicides being up, uh, you know, uh, 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 school shootings. I mean, we could trace a whole bunch of stuff to this psychological decoupling uh, from Christianity, even in this discussion that we are having about reparations, where I proposed it be a dollar, and we know, not but, and we know that a dollar, as you just said, would never be enough. To what? Uh, so, to to fully completely ameliorate the wrong correct right and so my perspective goes uh my perspective is or my thought on this is reparations is a slippery slope and i don't think we want to go down that road and i've always been anti-reparations uh I, I don't I, I, partially the moral argument about theft. It really irks me there. But the other idea there that, that lurks underneath there is this concept of vendetta, but it's endless vendetta. And it's and, and just because it's not a physical vendetta where you physically use your life instead, it is a property vendetta of your money doesn't make it any better. I you. But to me, it's more like blood money. It gets paid once and then literally the issue goes away. After but you know it wouldn't point, go away. People would not be able to say, but <laughs> this happened. And no, you got your compensation. Go away. Have you ever say that? You know? Um, so uh yeah, it's it's interesting because um if you uh so first of all, with respect to blood money, our societies or not just ours, anyone living under the Anglo-American common law. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still not broad enough. Anyone living within a legal system derived from the English common law system, there we which go. came so out of the Judeo-Christian, which, which came out of the Judeo-Christian concept of the Ten Commandments and and the Judaic law and the Hebraic law. Yeah, okay, yeah, go ahead. Right, but it right. doesn't start there and skip over the stuff in the middle. It goes through what the Anglo-Saxon kings did, and what yes, the Anglo-Saxon okay. kings did is they had a different dollar amount, as it were, for the life of a different rank in society. So mm -hmm. if that person were killed, blood money had to be paid. 
it's part of their legal system's history and used to be part of the legal system. And I can't tell you off the top of my head when it stopped, right? But it was part. It was a part of the system closer, by the way, to the arrival of Christianity than now. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I don't recall ever learning about anyone in the church objecting to the notion at the time. Um, you know, but anyway, uh, it it that that type of payment is designed to prevent vendetta. It's designed to prevent just an endless cycle of bloodletting because it says, even if it's arbitrary, it says this is where it stops because this payment was made. Okay, I will I will I will do one. I will I will make one other negotiated compromise here. I would be in favor of something like what you are proposing, which is limited reparations. I would be in favor of that if we could change the language from reparations to as we do in a civil case, damages. So let's go ahead. Let's, because that's what damages are. Dem- damages are blood money, basically, to stop the vendetta. That's where that's where that idea from English common law has wound up at. It has wound up as, uh, if I defame you, and the jury finds that I have defamed you, uh, I have to pay you damages. Uh, criminal damages, civil damages, we see this. Fines, um, you know, if you uh, uh, drive drunk, and you uh, hit a telephone pole, uh, the city or municipality where you hit that telephone pole is going to fine you, in addition to doing a whole bunch of other things to you. Uh, That is that idea of blood money, right? (laughs) Okay. So, I think a better analog is- So let's call it damages. Let's let's put the- Damages from a wrongful death action, because that's what we have now. But the damages can only be a dollar. They cannot be any more than that. Well, in a wrongful death action, they could be much more. I understand that, and I am unwilling to go that far. But you I would find say, a lawyer like me to do it. <laughs> I'm going to make millions, and you're going to make millions because uh, eventually we're only taking on one client at a time, and it's not a class action, right? Class actions, the lawyers make millions, and everybody else doesn't. <laughs> Where it's just one client, one family, as it were, suing, say, a doctor over wrongful death. Sure, the family is going to make real money. So it's you're just, saying. So you're proposing having a system where one family, let's say Henry Louis Gates family, Henry Louis Gates Jr., even though I would, I would propose that he's done very well without getting his dollar, but okay, let's use him as an example. Henry Louis Gates or Jesse Jackson. Let's use Jesse Jackson. Okay. DeRolo Nixon Jr. representing Jesse Jackson in a lawsuit against the federal government, uh, the people versus Jesse Jackson. Uh that would and be a criminal case, by the way. The people that, versus that, Jesse Jackson would be a criminal case. That would be a criminal case. Be Jackson v. United States. <laughs> Jackson v. United States. Okay, Jackson v. There we go. Jackson, Jackson v. United States. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know That's the order. That's okay. So I am. Go. Jackson v. United States. <laughs> this is why we invite the barrister on. That way we make sure the order is correct. All right. Jackson v. The United, Jackson v. The United States, right? Uh, how many? No, not how many. The level of individuality of those situations... Because there's going to be multiple Jackson v. United States. Uh, black people create 12% of the population, compose 12% of the population. Not all those black people more. are descended from slaves. It's well, more than that. I'm going with the, with the census numbers. It's 12 to 13%. It almost doesn't, it really doesn't move outside of those two, those two parameters, really. Um, but let's just say, and out of that 12 to sit to, I'll go as high as 15. Let's go as high as 15% of the population, although I don't think it's that high, but okay. 12 to 15%, right? right? 12.4. There you go. Um, 
out of those 12.6 in 2010. Okay. I'm used so, to being 13. That was probably like 2000. Anyway, yeah. I, I, I digress. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Jackson v. United States. He's part of that 12.4%. Uh, that you're looking at roughly, let me see, let's do some math. Out of 300 million people, you're looking at, uh, what is it, uh, 300,000 folks? Roughly, no, three million, three million, three million. So move, move my zeros in there. So you're looking at three million lawsuits, all for a dollar each. Okay. There's a way to package it together, but remember. But without class action, how do you do that? that I've been arguing is that the the mechanism of a blood money payment is more efficient than the current system, which is you have to bring a private suit. You have to spend this money on attorneys to do it. And it's and I didn't bring up it's going to take years. It's not right. going to be quick. Okay, right. blood money is quick, hmm. and the upside one of them, one of several upsides, is that the payments are quick. Among the downsides are well, is that a fair amount to compensate for the loss of a person? You're stuck with the amount. It's fixed in the actual law itself. For example, in Emirates, it's fixed in the law. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Um, there's no negotiation needed. You just so what, make the payment. <laughs> what what is the what is the dollar value of the work that my unpaid descendants for let's say four or five generations did on this continent? Because you can't get there from here. But what's the value there? Well, you I, you can I think you can actually I think an actuary would be able to provide a good model that could, you know, project what that yeah. would be. And I'm sure someone Plus has run the interest. numbers somewhere. Yes. I'm sure the, there's an actuary somewhere that has run the numbers. obviously be bigger than the moon. Right. So, <laughs> again, I get back. I get back to the crux of my objection, which is this idea of theft. And, and, and it... There's, I smell, <laughs> I'll use this phrase I always use. Uh, I used to demolish houses a long time ago. Um, and you can go into a house and you can smell when something's funky in the wall. Like, you know, like there's something funky in the wall. Not necessarily in your assertion or your argument. Uh, in the general house that's built around your argument, and your argument sits in one room of that house. The house of reparations, there's something funky in the wall. And it is this sense, I think it is, it is this sense that the only way to address the cosmic injustices of the past at a human level are through monetary compensation, again, to individuals who do not experience those things. That's number one. But also number two, who were, who now live in a future away from those folks in the past. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the question becomes how... Far in the future, should those should those comp- should that com- compensatory nature for that injustice go? And I don't think there's a good answer to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't think reparations quite gets it because we're tr- we're trying to solve something that is fundamentally out of our hands. Mm, there might be, um, if to the extent that they sell reparations as a means as a means to fix. Um, the dire socioeconomic situation in which very many African-Americans find themselves today, to the extent that they sell reparations as a means to do that, that that's, um, that's poor salesmanship. 
um, because it's not going to do that. Um, well, and let me be very clear. I'm sitting here as a middle class black guy. I've done fairly well in America without reparations. Like I, mm-hmm. I you know, I went I went to college. I've got my master's degree. I've mm-hmm. got my bachelor's degree. Uh, you know, I've, uh, I've made, uh, I, 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 have made, <laughs> I've made my money. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I live in a nice house. Uh, mm-hmm. clearly I have air conditioning, uh, even though I am in Texas where it is 120 degrees all the time, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm talking to another black guy who's a lawyer who went mm-hmm. to Cornell. I mean, come on, like we're two upper middle class black guys talking about this in very intellectual terms, trying to drain it of emotion to get to an idea here. And there, and, and when we, and I know this from negotiation, all of the other stuff that we're not talking about, the emotional content in this clouds the issue. And thus you, again, one more, one more knock against it. Thus you cannot get to clarity on reparations. And by the way, this is not anything new. When you look at the arguments against the constitution, and for the Constitution, this is a good segue, you see this exact same level of emotionalism and this exact same level of appeal to something else in the arguments that these men made. And I'd like to read some of those right now. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Back to the Anti-Federalist Papers, edited with an introduction by Ralph Ketchum, Slavery and the Constitution. These are arguments that were made on August 21st and August 22nd from various individuals. These are excerpts from their arguments. I'm going to read their names and then I'm going to read their arguments and we're going to kind of go through here because a lot of what they are saying touches on things that DeRolo and I have just been talking about. And I quote from Mr. L. Martin, proposed to vary the section four, article seven, so as to allow the prohibition or tax on the importation of slaves. So Martin proposed this. As five slaves were to be counted at, are to be counted as three free men in the apportionment of representatives, such a clause would leave an encouragement to this traffic. So Mr. Martin was worried that the, three, the, the notorious three-fifths clause would lead to more slaves being imported into the country, not less. Slaves weakened one part of the union. This was his argument. Slaves weakened one part of the union, which the other parts were bound to protect. The privilege of importing them was therefore unreasonable. It was inconsistent with the principles of the revolution and dishonorable to the American character to have such a feature in the Constitution. He was anti the three-fifths clause. Next, Mr. Rutledge. Mr. Rutledge did not see how the importation of slaves could be encouraged by this section. He was not apprehensive of insurrections and would readily exempt the other states from the obligation to protect the Southern against them. So if slaves were to engage in an insurrection, good luck, Virginia, you're on your own. That's Mr. Rutledge's position. Religion and humanity, I love this. Religion and humanity had nothing to do with this question. (laughs) I love what Rutledge said. Interest alone is the governing principle with nations. The true question at present is whether the Southern states shall or shall not be parties to the Union. If the northern states consult their interest, they will not oppose the increase of slaves, which will increase the commodities of which they will become the carriers. That was Mr. Rutledge's position. Mr. Ellsworth was for leaving the clause as it stands. Let every state import what it pleases. The morality or wisdom of slavery are considerations belonging to the states themselves. What enriches a part enriches the whole, and the states are the best judges of their particular interest. The old confederation had not meddled with this point, and he did not see any greater necessity for bringing it within the policy of the new one. 
Mr. Pinckney from South Carolina. South Carolina can never receive the plan if it prohibits the slave trade. In every proposed extension of the powers of Congress, the state has expressly and watchfully accepted that uh, of meddling with the importation of Negroes. And yes, they did use that word. The states, if the states be all left at liberty on this subject, South Carolina may perhaps by degrees do of herself what is wished, as Virginia and Maryland have already done. Mr. Sherman was for leaving the clause as it stands. He disapproved of the slave trade, yet as the states were now possessed of the right to import slaves as the public good did not require it to be taken from them, and as it was expedient to have as few objections as possible to the proposed scheme of government, he thought it best to leave the matter as we find it. He observed that the abolition of slavery seemed to be going on in the United States and that the good sense of several states uh, would probably by degrees complete it. He urged on the convention the necessity of dispatching its business. So Mr. Sherman was of the opinion, I disapprove of the slave trade, but let's get down to it already. And then Colonel Mason, <laughs> extensively quoting from Colonel Mason. I, I, I was very interested in what the colonel had to say here in his arguments. Colonel Mason said, and I quote, this infernal traffic originated in the avarice of British merchants, going back to the British. The British government constantly checked the attempts of Virginia to put a stop to it. The present question concerns not the importing of states alone, but the whole union. The evil of having slaves was experienced during the late war. Had slaves been treated as they might have been by the enemy, they would have proved dangerous instruments in their hands. But their folly dealt by the slaves as it did by the Tories. He mentioned the dangerous insurrections of the slaves in Greece and Sicily. Remember, they were trained in the humanities. They understood mm -hmm. history. And the mm -hmm. instructions mm -hmm. given by Cromwell to the commissioners sent to Virginia to arm the servants and slaves in case other means of obtaining its submission should fail. Maryland and Virginia, he said, had already prohibited the importation of slaves expressly. North Carolina had done the same in substance. All this would be in vain if South Carolina and Georgia be at liberty to import the Western people are already calling out for slaves for their new lands and will fill that country with slaves if they can be got through South Carolina and Georgia. And then here's Colonel Mason's coup de grace, his cup of grass, such as it were. Slavery discourages art, arts and manufacturers. The poor despise labor when performed by slaves. They prevent the immigration of whites. Really enrich and strengthen a country. <laughs> no cultural lack of confidence here. They produce the most pernicious effect on manners. Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven on a country. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, Providence punishes national sins by national calamities. He lamented that some of our Eastern brethren had, from a lust of gain, embarked in this nefarious traffic. As to the states being in possession of the right to import, this was the case with many other rights now to be properly given up. He held it essential in every point of view that the general government should have the power to prevent the increase of slavery. Mm -hmm. The challenge to the Constitution has been that the line of tension between good and evil, and we see this in the arguments over slavery, um, the tension between good and evil runs through every human heart. The ideals set down by the Declaration of Independence were not seen as too lofty by the founding generation of the United States. They were seen as perfectly reasonable. You could actually do the things 
that you said you were going to do in the declaration. The problem in our time, and this is what I worry about in the reparations discussion or talks of social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, these are the things that I worry about. The problem in our time is not that we aim too high. The problem instead is that out of a country of 330 million people, only about 15 million decide who will be elected into public office. The problem in our time is not that we aim to aim. The problem is that the body politic, down to its individual cells and mitochondria, has become enthralled to the siren songs of experts whose motives are as venal and self-serving as the people who place their trust in them. The problem in our time is not that we aim too high. The problem is that we cannot contextualize our aim both narrowly and broadly with a nod to the capacity of other human beings to either lead us, follow us, or leave us the heck alone. The United States is not ungovernable. And I don't buy the 1619 Projects idea. I don't buy any of it for a moment. The people are not ungovernable. The human heart is what remains the problem as it was in 1787. So it is now. And yet the founding generation still had the guts to take the shot and put the country together. And you see this in the arguments of these men. They knew slavery was a problem. They were not ignorant to it. They realized that that tension was there, but they could not resolve it. Not because they didn't have the will to, but because they realized that it would take all of their lifetimes to do. And did they really have all of their lifetimes to expend on putting together a country? Or did they just need to get up after it and let the chips fall where they may? Slavery created an insurmountable obstacle. And Darola and I have been talking about reparations for, gosh, probably 20 minutes now, you know. Um, the other dynamic in this is we are a country of immigrants. Um, I was listening to analysis the other day about uh, the number of uh, individuals who are coming from Central American countries mm -hmm. and from Mexico. Mm -hmm. who in a few generations will consider themselves to be white. Some of them already do. Mm -hmm. Not one of them held a slave. Mm -hmm. And yet, of course, an argument can be made that they have all benefited by the nation state even being here in its current construction from mm -hmm. the backs of chattel slavery. But you're going mm -hmm. to have a really hard time convincing those people that they owe a dollar or a dime of their tax money to somebody who they never enslaved, nor did their relatives. And as a matter of fact, some of their relatives might have been slaves in Central America from right, Mayan but, I mean, culture you, you and the Aztec culture. But you don't have to persuade them of that. They oh. owe their taxes They owe their taxes to one entity only, the U.S. government. If they don't oh. pay, they go to jail. That's it. That's what the law says. But we live in a representative government, and I don't... So you're saying that you, you're saying you're paying to send drones to kill people in Yemen? No, you're paying your tax dollars to the U.S. government. That government may turn around and then do that. But I think that there's a separation <laughs> between the taxpayer and how the U.S. government might spend the money. At least I hope there is. Mm, that's not otherwise, that is that is not how our friends on the left look at it. Otherwise, we then need to look at every single dollar spent because we're somehow responsible rather than the U.S. government as an entity being responsible. Um, 
Yeah, you can well, you can short circuit that issue by just having the U.S. government make the payment. Well, uh, as Colonel Mason said, and I I highlighted it in red, and I think it is worth repeating from Colonel Mason. Um, Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven on a country. And this is the big thing. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. Who lives in the nation? It's everybody. So there's a drone strike in Yemen because of my tax dollars, and a terrorist blows up a bus in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. National calamities national sins well national sins you know um i don't think there's a way to crack that nut Uh, but i think it is worth talking about because these are the kinds of conversations that you actually have to have in the system that we have built or that these men built and that we now perpetuate and move forward they took a shot at something that seemed to be insurmountable. Um, I don't know too many leaders that would have the guts to do this. I think they would become stymied by the arguments and I think they would give up. They would run out of energy. You mean Uh, now? Oh yeah, now. Oh yeah, of course not. Yeah, yeah. What can leaders learn from the fact that they just, I mean, they had had arguments about it, you know, and, and this was seeming to be, not just slavery, but on a number of different areas, just seemed to be insurmountable. And yet they still pulled the trigger. Yet they still said, no, this is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. What can leaders learn from that? Because not all not all arguments are solvable, right? In the now, right. anyway. Right, but production is more important than theory. Um, put a different way, mm-hmm. practically getting things done should trump... Um, the thought processes of creating this perfect architecture that then never gets realized um, that in the doing mm-hmm. that's where it's at. It's in the doing of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, second that, uh, you know, compromise reaching an imperfect solution is better than failure to compromise and thus there being no solution. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you want to get things done and get past problems uh, that don't have a ready solution, you know, politically, what that calls for is a compromise. And of course, there's people for whom compromise is uh, a disease they do not wish to catch. <laughs> right. They're not going to excel in leading, um, certainly in leading through difficult times. Um, and the larger the organization or institution, the harder it will be to lead through those difficult times. And yet that is what the leadership, that's what leadership is needed for. And so, um, you know, you, you do, I believe we do have to take our hats off to these men in the sense that they got it right. They were able to the second time come up with a mechanism that would balance the national with the regional that would balance the group with the individual in a way that was workable and that largely still remains intact. Uh, you know, 233 years later. It's impressive. Let's talk a little bit about those guys that won't compromise. <laughs> Let's talk about the original American gadfly. I mean, he was an OG before it was 
<laughs> he was an OG before he was an OG. Um, Patrick Henry. Now, most notably, he's known for his fiery speech um, against the British um, that uh, that came out of either these are preceded, I believe it preceded preceded the uh, the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, I know not what others do, but give me liberty or give me death. And then he, you know, allegedly made a stabbing motion to his chest. Uh, I read that. Uh, <laughs> uh, cause he was a dramatist as well as an orator. Um, yes, I'm trying not to call him a drama queen. <laughs> well, I'm trying. You know. I'm trying. <laughs> well, I mean, but there's a. I assert that there is a thread in American culture that Patrick Henry represents. And I think it is, you, it's a thread you can only have where you have an amendment that guarantees the right to speak. Um, but it does not protect you from the consequences of that speech. And it demands right. that you be robust in your thinking. And that you be robust in your um, your moral courage. And it also demands that you take a shot. So from the Anti-Federalist Papers, the speech of Patrick Henry, June 5th, 1788. This is going to be an extensive quote, so you're going to want to stick with me. These are the words of Patrick Henry. Mr. Chairman... I rose yesterday to ask a question which arose in my own mind. When I asked that question, I thought the meaning of my interrogation was obvious. The fate of this question of America may depend on this. Have they said we the states? Have they made a proposal of a compact between states? If they had, this would be a confederation. It is otherwise most clearly a consolidated government. The question turns, sir, on that poor little thing, the expression. We the people instead of the states of America. I need not take much pains to show that the principles of this system are extremely pernicious, impolitic, and dangerous. Is this a monarchy, like England, a compact between prince and people with checks on the former to secure the liberty of the latter? Is this a confederacy, like Holland, an association of a number of independent states, each of which retains its individual sovereignty? It is not a democracy, wherein the people retain all their rights securely. Had these principles been adhered to, we should not have been brought to this alarming transition from a confederacy to a consolidated government. We have no detail of these great considerations, which, in my opinion, ought to have abounded before we should recur to a government of this kind. Here is a revolution as radical as that which separated us from Great Britain. By the way, just a side note, pause here. Uh, Patrick Henry was invited to the Constitutional Convention, and he turned down the invitation. He said he, quote-unquote, smelled a rat. <laughs> um, uh, George Washington wanted him there uh, James Madison wanted him there um, Thomas Jefferson wasn't going to go and he thought that uh, Patrick Henry would be a good substitute for him uh, at that constitutional convention in Philadelphia and he declined the invitation again the original American gadfly let me keep going it is radical in this transition. Our rights and privileges are endangered and the sovereignty of the states will be relinquished. And cannot we plainly see that this is actually the case? 
the rights of conscience, trial by jury, liberty of the press, all your immunities and franchises, all pretensions to human rights and privileges are rendered insecure if not lost by this change, so loudly talked of by some and inconsiderately by others. Is this tame relinquishment of rights worthy of free men? Is it worthy of that manly fortitude that ought to characterize Republicans? It is said eight states have adopted this plan. I declare that if 12 states and a half had adopted it, I would with manly firmness and in spite of an erring world reject it. You are not to inquire how your trade may be increased, nor are you to become great and powerful people, but how your liberties can be secured for liberty ought to be the direct end of your government. Once again, pausing. Uh, he was a hedgehog. He only knew one thing. He only cared about one thing. Liberty. Back to Patrick Henry. Having premised these things, I shall, with the aid of my judgment and information, which I confess are not extensive, go into the discussion of this system more minutely. Is it necessary for your liberty that you should abandon those great rights by the adoption of this system? Is it the relinquishment of the trial by jury and liberty of the press necessary for your liberty? Will the abandonment of your most sacred rights tend to the security of your liberty? Liberty, the greatest of all earthly blessings, gives us that precious jewel and you may take everything else. But I am fearful I have lived long enough to become a fellow. Perhaps an invincible attachment to the dearest rights of man may, in these refined, enlightened days, be deemed old-fashioned. He's going to pull the old man card here. I'm just an old man. What do I know? If so, I am contented to be so. I say the time has been where every pore of my heart beat for American liberty, and which, I believe, I had a counterpart in the breast of every true American. But suspicions have gone forth, suspicions of my integrity, publicly reported that my professions are not real. 23 years ago was I supposed a traitor to my country. I was then said to be the bane of sedition because I supported the rights of my country. I may be thought suspicious when I say our privileges and rights are in danger, but sir, a number of people of this country are weak enough to think these things are too true. I'm happy to find out that the honorable gentleman on the other side declares they are groundless, but sir... I love this. Suspicion is a virtue as long as its object is the preservation of the public good and as long as it stays within proper bounds. You know, I read this and, you know, this is the guy you invite to a party and he starts speechifying and everybody rolls their eyes and walks away. Yep. <laughs> this, this is the guy. But you know what? You can't argue with his integrity. And a lot of the points that he makes um, eventually wound up being in the Bill of Rights. He basically argued, because the original Constitution didn't have the, 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 the Ten Amendments that became the Bill of Rights. It didn't have that. That, wasn't, that, was, that was a tack on because of guys like Patrick Henry mm -hmm. who said, whoa, you got a lot of stuff here. But what about freedom of the press? What about my right to keep and bear arms? And by the way, if you look at uh, the Virginia Compact, um, if you look at some of the other documents that are in uh, that are in the Anti-Federalist arguments, you will see that Virginia, uh, New Hampshire, Maryland, a few others, um, actively pushed for the inclusion of language that relates directly to what Patrick Henry was talking about here. Um, 
life, liberty, property, freedom of speech, freedom of press, uh, freedom to associate, um, <laughs> freedom to keep and bear arms in the event that the central government gets out of control. You talk about Patrick Henry being a borderland guy, uh, being the Hill people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at a more fundamental level, he does introduce this strain to the American consciousness of the guy who won't shut up. <laughs> and it usually is a guy, tragically, ladies, sorry, it usually is, who's obsessed with one thing. And mm-hmm. he can talk and he can talk and he can talk and he can talk. And he's usually the bane of a leader's existence. And they have sophisticated resistance. They have eloquent arguments. And they and, and they know how to navigate complaints. They know how to whine in a really sophisticated way. They're also fundamentalist absolutists. Um, how do you deal with the intellectually sharp and the highly resistant? Um. <laughs> and sometimes I have been that way with you. So, like, maybe just give them tips on how to deal with me. Because, like, you know, <laughs> let's be I don't real think here. You're <laughs> as obstinate as Patrick Henry. Um, <laughs> no, he's probably got me beat by a country mile. Just. You know, it's just, um, so this question is in general, right? So mm-hmm. not on the teams we lead, right? Because some of the sharpness can be dealt with with objective rules, where if they right. don't follow, they won't be on the team. Right. Um, but, you know, deeper down and more substantively, it's just, you know, how, how do you deal with difficult people? Um, right. Sometimes you have to call them on their stuff. And I'm it, that is affording them the courtesy of taking what they're asserting seriously, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is what some of these people actually want rather than, you know, actually not seeing any movement at all on an issue where they don't want to see movement or where they want to see movement on an issue. Um, you know, uh, them just being relentless about it. So, um, yeah, it's how do you deal with difficult people, you know, um well and 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 henry was i mean he opposed madison and jefferson at every turn um his fellow virginians yes he was the only one from that region right Right. um he 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 was opposed to tyranny i mean that seemed to be the thread in his life uh tyranny was the thing like if you waved a flag of tyranny even just the sense of tyranny in front of him he would charge at it uh there was a sure way to get patrick henry riled up and it was just to say centralized power like that forget it like that's going to get him riled up and you see that in american politics both on the progressive left and on the um the republican right um you see that in most notably in 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 uh uh the religious, the more religiously associated aspects of politics, um, particularly mm-hmm. where people are filtering their, they're filtering their religion through their politics, uh, <laughs> which you should never do, by the way, just pro tip kids, don't do that. Um, but um, <laughs> but you see that, um, and it is, and Patrick Henry has been held up as a darling of both the left and the right, because of that that ability to be resistant and i do think that that's a strong thing in american character um you need guys like patrick henry uh you need guys that cannot be bought off or bribed 
who don't care if you destroy their character. Um, and as a matter of fact, if you try to buy them off, if you try to bribe them, if you try to destroy their character, they actually increase in power rather than decrease. I think we're watching this happen, ironically enough, with Dave Chappelle. I think we are watching this happen right now in real time. Because every time somebody tells him he can't stand up and make jokes on a stage because of something, some ideological ox that got gored by somebody because of some joke he made, he grows in stature and he grows in power. And I think mm -hmm. that is a fundamental misunderstanding of that Patrick Henry obstinance that cuts through the American character. Mm-hmm. 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 It is fascinating to watch. Um, and of course, you know, we have a former president who, you know, famously said, um, words to the effect of I could walk down the middle of Fifth <laughs> Avenue and shoot somebody and they still support me. Right. And at that and moment, it didn't matter what he did, his popularity just increased. It was correct. astonishing. Um, so a very American trend, right? So yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh well, and I it's think good. I it's good for the body politic that these people are around. They're serving a, a necessary end, and it's it's a good thing. Um, the homogenous societies in which you do not have these voices, in which you do not have irascible people who uh, will just shut up and get in line and play along, okay, those societies I, I think are far more interesting to live in. I'm certain that they're freer, right? Because, um, I mean, nobody got freedom by certainly not on this continent by shutting up and staying in line and following all the rules it was you know here we are with our guns and we're going to kill you until you go away and let us be free got it so you know um a certain amount of that irascibility was necessary one of the things with you know mr henry's perspective that is hard for me to get around is just he was a great voice for liberty but politically he could not get past the notion of my state best protects my rights as a free citizen and thus that's my interest you know like he just he couldn't get past um he couldn't get past virginia um you know and so well, you look at where things are now. It's just yeah, I don't yeah. know what he would make of this. But he 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 it was it's a lack of vision that he couldn't get past Virginia. Um that he couldn't see uh and it's predictable, but that he couldn't see um a centralized government um having certain powers over the states as being a mechanism that would actually increase individual freedom. He didn't see that either. No, and I think I think that a lot of people. I don't think he was alone. Um, you know, Andrew Jackson didn't see it either. Uh, you know, um, I would assert that um, all of the actually not even all. I would say probably a quarter of the presidents leading up to Abraham Lincoln didn't see it, and then the Civil War, you know, broke the national character on that, and it is only in recent years. And I would say within the last 10 to 15 years, that serious talk of, because this is where Patrick Henry goes, serious talk of secession has now shown up. Mm -hmm. And it gets down to the talk in our modern era does not get down to issues about slavery. Instead, it is about issues of culture, cultural differences, 
mm-hmm. uh, issues of mm, tax policy, uh, issues of um, a federal government that has wildly overstepped its bounds um, at the administrative state level, which is why the Dobbs versus West Virginia, uh, or yeah. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, the Dobbs decision, or not the Dobbs decision, I'm going to mix those two up, West Virginia versus the EPA. The West Virginia versus EPA decision is the most monumental decision in the Supreme Court in the last hundred years. It, it just is. Um, because now we are looking at the slow dissolution of the administrative state. It's going to take a while. But Patrick Henry would probably be, he would probably say, you you not only have you been hit by not only has the body politic been hit by multiple bullets and has somehow miraculously survived um the final fatal bullet may have been pulled out i think he would probably say frame it that way and with the exception of people who are on the far political right you don't hear anybody talking like that mm. not even close um, but you know what? CNN is publishing articles about secession. Like, what would the country look like if it were broken up? So, I mean, it's it's becoming more of a, oh yeah, oh yeah, MSNBC. I mean, it, you know, so there's there's some wandering here in this Patrick Henry direction of irascibility. Now, the challenge is, and he didn't foresee this either. The challenge is how big the cities are inside of the states. So you see this in a state like Minnesota, where everything around Minneapolis votes Republican. And has, by the way, for like the last 50 years. But Minneapolis has such a strong, such a large population of individuals who vote Democrat that the entire state goes to the Democratic. It's not even a competitive. It's not even competitive. You you can't make a dent there. I think Donald Trump did the best. Speaking of Donald Trump, did, did the best there most recently out of any Republican. But like even in landslides, uh, infamously Walter Mondale versus uh, versus uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, the only state. Yeah. Yep. And back in nineteen eighty four, the only state that went for Mondale was Minnesota, and that's because of people in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he would have anticipated, I don't think any of the founding fathers would have seen how powerful cities would become inside of the states. And I don't know how you, I, I don't think they have a good, they have a good, they would have had any good wisdom for how you separate those two things. Mm-hmm. 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 And yet that's what the whole, you know, that's part of the whole gambit, right? Right. Um, it's fascinating because, um, one of the mechanisms directly prohibited by the constitution, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, to get mine out because it relates to this subject. Um, there are specific um, provisions that talk about how states get made, right? Mm-hmm. They also talk about how states cannot be made. Yes. So article four, section three, Yes. Um, new states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, mm-hmm. nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned, as well as of the Congress. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, okay, I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to prevent the United States of America fracturing like Germany used to be fractured right. into several dozen different polities mm-hmm. in a very small space. Um, they're also trying to prevent 
basically an insurrection turning into some other type of state or country. And right. so I was surprised when I, in my most reading, recent reading of the Constitution, which of course was for this podcast, um, and not today's, but an earlier one, um, I was surprised to learn this. Well, and I wrote, I wrote in my notes, um, when I read the Reddit, I immediately went to, I wrote in my notes, can't split off the urban areas. That's basically what this is. And so you're going to have urban polities, uh, like in the great, in the great state of Texas, uh, the urban polity of Houston. Uh, Houston used to be a city that voted solidly Democrat uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, without Houston, Lyndon Johnson would never have been a, uh, a senator um, and thus would never have been vice president and thus would never have been president. And over the course of time, what has happened is as the hint, the outlying areas around Houston have become redder, uh, to use our current political coloring system, uh, Houston has become bluer. Now, part of that is due to immigration, internal immigration, EMI immigration, from uh, New Orleans due to Hurricane Katrina. And so the people who left New Orleans moved to Houston. Uh, many of them stayed there, and they voted reliably Democrat. That shifted Houston, which had been starting to trend towards being more Republican, into being in a firm blue direction, and it will be firmly blue for a long time. But if you look at Texas, Texas gives uh, people on the left, political left in this country, uh, angina, <laughs> just like California gives people on the political right, angina. <laughs> and it is these cities that are at the core creating tension between the hinterlands, between the country and folks who want to be in the country and folks who want to be in urban areas and want to be urbanized. And the, the Constitution... Other than an article, Article Four, Section Three, is quiet on this. It's almost saying you're going to have to figure this out. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. And if I'm Patrick Henry, I don't like that. I I I look at that and I go, huh? That's a recipe for disaster. Because I think Patrick Henry could see the future, but he couldn't see it in the way that we're talking about it. Um, and he didn't care about slavery, which is really interesting. He had nothing to say on slavery, although he had slaves. Um, he had nothing to say about slavery. Uh, he that might not bode well, though. <laughs> that might be. He thought it was literally not an issue, so he wasn't even going to deign to comment on it. Um, <laughs> right. Right. You know, which would be worse. But for, well, in my mind, it would be worse. Um, yeah. You know, um. We don't well, apparently have correspondence between him and anyone who was enslaved like we do have from George Washington. Right. One example. And of course, him being a great man, it was a great example. Right. But it was a solitary great example. So, what? yeah. And now we're, we're ending our, our, our episode here today. Uh, we'll have a little bit of an extra, so a little bit of extra piece. So hang out at the end of the episode. We're going to have a little addendum on this, talking a little bit more about Patrick Henry. Um, that uh, I think you, as listeners, would be really interested in hearing. 
um, particularly Patrick Henry in light of him coming from Hill Country, coming from the borderlands, and, uh, and just being this irascible, to use DeRolo's word, American. Yep, final Patriot. thoughts, staying on the, yeah, final thoughts, staying on the path. What can leaders take from everything that we've covered over the last three, four episodes from the Declaration of Independence all the way to the, the arguments against the Constitution? Uh, what can leaders take from this? How can leaders stay on the path, DeRolo? Well, I think it should be encouraged. To me, it's encouraging um, because they were able to get through the necessary compromises and hold the whole thing together. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it did not collapse. It did not, you know, the United States did not collapse in 1788, 89, did not break into regional governments. They were able to hold the union and literally transition uh the form of federal government from one system to another. So in effect, it was another revolution. Um, Henry was right about that. He was just wrong about the character of the revolution, which is really to say he was using oratory and so he was exaggerated. But anyway, um, it's encouraging to me because it shows if you put in, if you put in the hard hours talking about the essential issues and you make the right type of compromises, you can actually arrive at something beautiful. Um, and it's just, it's um, under, it's oversold when the difficulty and the hard work is minimized or hidden from people, but we undersell it and we don't talk about how great it, it is and just what they actually accomplished. It's truly magnificent. Um, so I, I think it's an encouraging example. Um, very encouraging. I would agree. From my perspective, um, as the great grandson of a sharecropper who before that was had relatives who were slaves. Um, as part of the 12.4% of the population that identifies as an American who happens to have brown skin, which is a different thing than an African American or black American or whatever the appenuration is right now. And yeah, I did just make up a word there. Whatever the naming scheme is now as a person who has children, uh, some of whom are very young. Um, I'm going to sum up what I believe about this by quoting a line from the Godfather, from the opening, from Bonacera. I believe in America. I'm raising my children in the American fashion. I'm raising them to speak and to lead with grace civility and respect and to understand that adulthood is hard and that compromise is sometimes what you have to do. You have to deal with all different types of people in all different types of places. And there is no better place to do this work than the place we find ourselves in here and now. Leaders, If you, in your average daily life, don't at least give a nod to protecting the republic, you're not really paying attention to the work of leadership. 
Look, if you're a CEO and you own a multinational organization, good for you. If you're running a multinational organization making $50,000 a month, good for you. But just remember the ideas and the products that built that, that built you, came out of America. You want to know how we were able to turn the tide in World War II? You want to know how we were able to win the Cold War? It was because of the ideas and the character that was built on top of the stones that these men in all of their frailty and biases laid. You don't just root up the concrete without having a plan to replace it. And this is my challenge to folks who say, well, they were racist and they were bigoted and they were sexist and so we should throw out the whole thing. Here's my challenge to you. Could you do better? Because I don't think that you can. Doing better has been tried, by the way, all over the world ever since 1787. And no one's hit the mark other than us quite just yet. All the way from the Transcontinental Railroad to going to the moon. All the way from splitting the atom to splitting genes. All the way from Henry Ford to Elon Musk. People still vote with their feet and their ideas still come here because the United States is still the last best hope for humanity because of the work these men did. And you have a privilege as a leader of an organization, a culture, a team, a family, or a community of leading in the best possible place you could possibly lead from. So don't underestimate that. Don't overestimate it. And stay on the path. I'd like to thank the good friend of the podcast, Rollo Nixon. We'll have him back looking at some other books and documents. I gave you a whole heap and helping of him this month. So we'll let him kind of cool off a little bit. Let him go back and uh, iron out the wrinkles in that blazer. Do some more lawsuits. <laughs> Do some more lawsuits. Yeah, because we don't have blood money. <laughs> You'll be looking for him. By the way, if anybody wants to hire Dorolo Nixon, we will have links to all the places where you can hire him if you would like to get a hold of him in case you want to file that damages lawsuit against the United States of America. I'm sure he would be willing to take that on. Uh, we will have links to everywhere where you can find Dorolo Nixon Jr. on the internet. Once again, thank you for coming on the podcast. And with that, I'm out. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. We've got a little bit of an extra bonus piece of audio for you here coming in after my voice fades out. We'll cut this and put it someplace else. Okay. No, I just, I don't think, uh, I don't think Patrick Henry could have been president because, um, his unwillingness to bend, uh, to recognize, for example, as Ben Franklin, you know, did in his speech, that this is the direction in which the prevailing winds are going. And, you know, maybe right. I have a little bit of this off that's possible. So why don't I see to this thing that otherwise, you know, by the way, is just about perfect. Um, right, right. 
but he didn't believe it. But he didn't believe it was perfect. He was like, "No, it's not perfect because right. it doesn't." But he said it was close. The, the oh, principle. He said it was close. Yeah, it was close. So that's the first thing. The second thing would be, um, he was kind of a one-note uh, flute player, hmm. pounding away on liberty, 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 liberty. Okay, that's great, but. There are other issues involved in statecraft than just freedom and liberty. Well, and he thought that all of those other issues, Henry did, he thought that all of those other issues were, none of those other issues mattered without liberty. And he's right. It's just, you still have to talk about them. You have to get past liberty to things, and, or if you, if you don't want to get past it, go through liberty to get you know to issues like internal revenue, trade policy. Um, and so... It doesn't bother me using the prism of liberty as the lens to examine all of those other issues, but you still have to examine all the other issues, make decisions on them, create policies, you know, that that carry out the, those decisions. Um, you know, it's just like I can't imagine him building an institution. No, and I don't think I he can just at, imagine him talking. Right, he wasn't. That's one of the things you you find out when you look at at Patrick Henry. He was considered by his peers to be a great orator. He could talk you to death, but he, he this is one of the interesting things um, somebody said about him. He he could talk forever, but he couldn't write anything down worth a damn, basically. <laughs> like he didn't, he, you know, he could walk into, and he was a lawyer, so he could like walk into a, and you know this, you, you've been in, you've been in a trial situation. You walked into a trial situation and he understood the principle in the trial situation. That this is about persuasion. He got that for sure. Nailed that. But he couldn't persuade through through writing. He had zero interest in any of that. And I think there's a strain in the American culture, where both on the right and on the left politically, where that still exists today. Just the obstinate, as you were saying, one-note character that's the gadfly. <laughs> as Bruce Willis said in Die Hard, I'm the fly in the ointment, Hans. <laughs> and he was just trying to get home. You know, I'm the, I'm the monkey with his wife. Right. So, I'm the monkey in the wrench. Yeah. That's what I am. <laughs> exactly. And Patrick Henry is the original monkey in the wrench. Like Patrick Henry would have loved Die Hard. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Until he found out that all that gold was in a federal institution. Right. It's where? Why is it not in Virginia? Excuse me? <clears throat> that doesn't, uh, that doesn't, that don't jive. Yeah, I think it's hardest to one one of the things that's hard in you know revisiting these arguments at a two hundred and thirty year distance is um, the extent to which people's conception of America and their own states and the relationship between the two it's is changed. It's been fundamentally changed, right? Um, in several respects, not all respects, but several respects, and so. Um, to me, it just shows he had a lack of a vision about what the United States would grow into. Um, he had a good vision about where Virginia was, and he had a good vision of trying to use Virginia to protect the rights of man. He talked about it mm -hmm. ad nauseum. Um, but that betrays a want of a vision for what would become the United States, whereas, you know, Washington had one, Jefferson had one, they could articulate and articulate you know, visions for westward expansion and growth. Obviously, Andrew Jackson had one. Um, these were the great 
political decision makers who were able to take their vision and say, now, how do I make this constitution work for me? Right. To achieve this end, because this is something seismic, you know, this is something that is a permanent game changer. And he just, he wasn't there. It wasn't his temperament, wasn't his perspective. Frankly, when you, when you, if you like um, cultural anthropology, mm-hmm. You can dig into, you know, his borderland Appalachia culture and find, oh, okay, there are cultural antecedents that explain why they don't want to give up power to anything central. They don't want to move off of their mountains. And of course, if you just leave them there, they're perfectly fine. They're happy, right. healthy, they're self-supporting, self-perpetuating, not an issue yep. uh, for the most part. So, you know, it just, the problems come when people are, show up and say, Hey, you really need to be doing things differently. And then I just think they hear alarm bells that remind them, Oh, this is what the English said when they showed up in Scotland. This is what it just goes over and over and over. And I, I mean, obviously they're expecting those people to show up too, but it's just, you know, people just haven't learned, you know, it's like any, anybody invading Afghanistan hasn't learned. They just haven't, you know, they just haven't just invasion after invasion. Why did, why does it always fail the same way here, but not next door, but here. Oh, okay. Well, is it about those mountains and those valleys SWAT and other, what is it about them? You have to learn how to fight in the desert mountains somewhere in, in the world. Like you do just, there has to be a location for every major power to get those kinds of lessons because you can't get them anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think it's tactical problems. I just think it's no. an, a failure to understand the nature of the cultures there and their, you know, it's actually called, uh, it's, it's Pashtunwala, right? Yeah. That's yep. it's what it's called. So me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me and my brother and our cousin against our neighbors, me and my brother, my cousin, and our neighbors against the next street, Etc. Etc. Going outwards, and so, um, in such a culture, it almost seems like you would you would accomplish more strategically by giving them a bone to fight over, as it were, and then watching what happens rather than saying, "Oh, well, with our technology and you know the new capabilities, we're gonna this is what we're gonna do, and here's how they're gonna react." And it's just like you study these people's history, like. Not what happens. So wait, are you saying that that like the Afghanis the Afghanis and the Pashtuns are the global version of Borderlands Appalachia Hill people? It's interesting because <laughs> you know one of the things they share, it's it's the mountainous setting, right? Right. And of course for Appalachia they're they're not large mountains. So this is more like people living in the Rocky Mountains. But right. um there's something to be said for uh the and the french have it too montagnard is this mentality um that basically says stay over where you are i'm here on my mountain mind my own business leave me alone and but right. yes i'm armed and if you show up here you're gonna die like it's 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 just it goes with comes with the territory perfect comes with the territory so wherever you find the territory i think you'll find the mentality um and so when people just don't want to you know take it into consideration um or think that it's easily displaced that's what i find most troubling because to me it just shows the failure to understand the nature of the beast that you're dealing with 
Right. Yeah. You know, Um, it's just, let's give a contrasting example. Um, Islands. Okay. Islands are used to people showing up because they're islands, right? Right. Islands are also usually places that are ironically both insular and yet everybody knows everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially well, small islands, larger islands. And obviously the larger the island is, the, the more, it, you know, tends to go like a continent, you know. But um, but, you know, for small enough islands, they, they tend to be, um, you know, outsiders come in, they, they welcome them, whether it's traders or whatever, because they need that to survive. Right. Um, and yet they still have a bit of an insular nature about and no pun insular coming from Latin referring to island you know right yeah not an accident that's the term uh used uh for that type of society and personality yet at the same time uh, and on islands people do not have privacy <laughs> at all so um you know it's a different type of mentality and thus conflict on islands you know i would hope uh, that people would do their homework and figure out oh, okay this this islands function differently so uh, you know, when we were island hopping across the Pacific to get to Japan, when, you know, islands, I think it was the British who were, other than Sicily, the British who were conquering islands in the Mediterranean during World War II, taking them back from Germans. Um, but, you know, there, there's there's a mentality. Um, the one I find most interesting to read about is uh, the, the reconquest of Greece, I find. Mm. Actually, this is a great way to tie them together. The reconquest of Greece, you have both sets of mentalities coming together. As on Crete, you have both an island and mountain. And, and so you literally have both trends happening at the same time. It's great. Um, and so, you know, um, it, but it, it's a thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a thing. And uh, yeah, so... It will be interesting the next time someone is proposing something like that to see if anyone says, did we learn from last time? Or not. I don't I don't think we will have learned from last time. Oh, well. And of course, as a republic that is governing a democratic nation, um, the lessons have to be relearned because popular opinion can change after 40, 50 years, and all of a sudden you're going to do the same dumb thing again. <laughs> people's memories, you know, or not even always people's memories. Sometimes, frankly, just too much time has gone by. Right. And the right information wasn't inculcated. And of course, the, the classic biblical expression is, and there arose uh, a new Pharaoh, you know, who had not heard of Joseph. I had not heard of Joseph. Oh, okay. So yeah. all of a sudden, the tune changed. Because someone hadn't communicated to him, hey, this is why these other people are just here, living on the best land, minding their own business, and we should just leave them there doing that. You know, yeah. like that 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 was not there at all, you know. Right. Um yeah. Well, let's go get, uh, let's and history pedagogy issues right issues. there. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course, Spotify. And leave a five-star review if you like the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. Look, we need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way that you can help us actually grow this show. 
and of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started down the leadership path, uh, our products at, from HSCT Publishing can help you and your team do that. So check out our training webinars, our coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. And check out our video-based subscription service at leadingkeys.com. We've got books that will help you and your team grow. So pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And subscribe to the Little Red podcast we launched earlier this year with the same name as this Little Red book, My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And of course, pick up my most recent book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, written with Bradley Madigan. You're going to want to pick up a copy of that in April 2022. And you can get both of these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place you order books on demand. Finally, we are on YouTube, or I'm on YouTube, or someone around here is on YouTube. So like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing on YouTube and hit the subscribe button to get updates every single time we upload a new video, which we do that at least once a week. And subscribe to the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience podcast Yes, I have three podcasts on YouTube where I talk more casually with a wider range of people all about all matters that matter in the world today. Everything from fatherhood to criminal justice, Christianity to artificial intelligence. We cover the entire plethora of things that are floating around in my mind, and that's why it's called an audio experience. All right, well, that's it for me. Out.